0: you need to get a grip on and hold on to it tenaciously is humility. And the Bible proves this beyond any question. Let me give you some quotes of some good men. Listen to this. Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly. Be humble. The best man in your church is the man who is willing to be a doormat for everybody to walk their boots on, the brother who does not mind what happens to him at all. As long as God is glorified, is it? That person who's really humble—they don't care what you say about them. They don't care what you how you treat them. What they care about is that the Lord is glorified. And, and if that means, uh, in the context of you being used in the church and being beneficial to His cause, that's wonderful. But if it isn't, then you ought to be glorifying just the same. There is no such thing as a person being big or important in the church and not being humble. That's his point. Oh, by the way, that's C.H. Spurgeon who said it. Also, nothing will make us so tender to the faults of others as by self-examination thoroughly to know your own heart. Well, when you know your own heart, you won't have a bunch of trouble having submissive Humility. Here's another one. This, one. this one comes from someone more familiar. The beginning of greatness is to be little. The increase of greatness is to be less. The perfection of greatness is to be nothing. Nothing. D.L. Moody said that. And it goes back to what we said in the morning worship service. That's when the, the Bible said in the passage we read today, and it was said, that, you know, not to be offended when the world hates you, when the world starts persecuting you, don't be offended. The word means don't, don't allow it to be a stumbling block to you. Don't let it cause you to, to begin to have second thoughts about your faithfulness to the Lord. Don't, don't let that happen. The point about that is, if you consider yourself like Paul, as nothing, then nothing can offend you. And the fact of the matter is, um, great... Peace have they which love thy law, and nothing, nothing, nothing shall offend them. You get offended easily, you just hold on yourself. You're not a person of the book. You don't read it with undertaking of saturation. You don't take it for yourself. You do it out of a moral obligation, but not for personal gain to glorify Him. So what happens is you get offended over the least of things. That's not humility. Humility is to say, "Hey, I probably deserve that." You say, I, I'm, "I'm not too, I'm not too brilliant. I'm not too smart. I'm, not, I, I, I'm that's probably who I am. That's what I am." Who cares what people think? I mean, when people brag on you, remember who they are. They're human beings who are sinners saved by grace. If they're saved, and if they're not saved, they have their value is zero value to you. Don't take the estimates of other people to either build you up or take you down. Be humble before the Lord. And the Bible says, you humble yourself. You humble yourself. Don't wait until somebody has to say something to put you in your place. Humble yourself. There's also... This quote's by Augustine. He says, If you plan to build a tall house of virtue, you'll first have to dig a deep foundation of humility, or you will crumble. Here's another. It's a contradiction to be a true Christian and not be humble. It's a contradiction to be a true Christian and not be humble. Here's another one. Charles Wesley said, Keep us little and unknown, prized. And loved by God alone. So keep yourself little and unknown. Don't spread your name around. Don't act like you're somebody. Know what you are. You're nothing but a low-down, scoundrel, wicked sinner saved by the grace of God. And if you never get away from that, you won't have to be worrying about somebody putting you in your place. You'll already be in your place, humble before the Lord. Here's one more. Paschal said, do you wish people to think well of you? Then don't speak well of yourself. That'll put us in the right place. If you want people to speak well of you, do not speak well of yourself. Let other people do it. Let another man praise you and not yourself. Never let a word cross your lips that lifts you up and speaks of you as being important or, or seriously above others. Don't do that. The Bible says in three passages of Scripture succinctly that that's from a heart that does not have humility in it. So here's te- the passage in Luke chapter 4 is familiar to all of us. We know this passage. Luke chapter 4 is the setting of the temptation of Jesus Christ. Let's read it only for the sake of getting from it the one phrase out of it that I need. Verse 1, Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 2, Being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when when they were ended he afterward hungered. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Jesus answered him and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That comes from Deuteronomy 8.3, verse 5. The devil taking him up into a high mountain showed him or unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it, if thou therefore wilt worship me all shall be thine. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. In verse 9, He brought him into Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout or through all the region round about. What's interesting in this passage of Scripture is that uh, when we usually read it or refer to it, in fact, the last time I referred to it, I did not say a word about I think one of the most important passages, a text of Scripture about pride anywhere in all the Bible. In this passage of Scripture, notice very carefully, in uh, verse number 6, the devil said unto him, well, he takes him, verse 5, he takes him into a high mountain, he shows unto him all the kingdoms of the world. And he did it in a moment of time. And the devil says to the Lord Jesus, verse 6, all of this power or authority will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. There's an interesting thing that uh, the book of John, First John, tells us and teaches us that there is the um, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the of life the pride of life those are the three temptations that man deal with lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and the pride of life the pride of life is contrary to the humility that the bible teaches us that every christian should have so wherever you see pride in that context is to say this person is allowing the devil to tempt him. He's allowing the evil spirit to speak to him, work on him, change him, move him, stir him toward what he wants him to do. So in the case with the Lord Jesus, get this picture. Who is the devil in this case? Anybody want to make a shot? Who is he? I mean, obviously we know he's the devil, but who is the devil? What's, what is he? What is the devil? I can't hear you. An angel. An angel. And who made all the angels? The Lord Jesus Christ did. Now get the picture. You have this created being saying to the Creator, If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you everything you see. Psalm 50 says, The earth is the Lord's, and in effect, everything therein. The fact of the matter is, it is one of those issues that says very clearly that the Lord created the universe and everything that's in it. And the fact is that the devil, who is a created angel, comes to him and says, All of this you see, I'll give it to you. Now, forgive me, how stupid can you be? How stupid can the devil be? Here he stands in the very presence of his creator, and he somehow has missed it. He doesn't understand it. And he should have caught on to it because but now he's gone through a lot of battles and a lot of messages he's heard and I'm sure had a lot of influence on the people who heard them to try to keep them from understanding who Jesus was. And yet the devil's standing there and saying to Jesus Christ, why don't you bow down to me and if you bow down to me, I'll give you all this. First off, Jesus could have blinked and the guy would have evaporated. He could have said, uh, do you know who you're talking to? He didn't say that. What he did do is he illustrated for us, here's how you handle it when he comes to you. Now, you aren't the creator of the universe, and you didn't create him. But what you can say to him is what the Bible says. Our job is not to worship anything. 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 You're not to put anything, anything above the Lord. Not a thing. Not your spouse, not your children, not the greatest love of your heart. You cannot do that. Because when you do, you just did what the devil invited Jesus to do. Bow down to him. You bow down to me. It's like you going to the Grand Canyon and you thinking to yourself, Boy, did I not do a wonderful job. And you didn't have a thing to do with it. And when people have a talent, when people have an ability or something, and they gloat in it, or they're proud of it, or they have this sense of pride that just oozes from them, it's like looking at the Grand Canyon and patting yourself on the back. The Bible says clearly, What did you and what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not and was not given by the good hand and the good grace of God? And the answer is obvious for most of us who know any math. It's zero. You don't have a single thing that you did not receive. If you have an ability to do something and it's important and it accomplishes a purpose, meets your needs and blesses your family, bless the Lord, O your soul. But the fact is, don't you claim it any more than you look at the Grand Canyon and say, look what I did. You didn't do it. It's not yours. It's not your work. It's His good grace. But that's the problem. We somehow hang on to the pride about things, and therefore we don't have humility. And because we don't have humility, the Bible indicates that if you exalt yourself, you're going to take a hard fall. Oh, it may not come today or next week or next year, but it'll come. Why? Because if you're a professing Christian, God's not going to let you ruin your life being proud and arrogant the rest of it. I was proud and I was arrogant when I first entered the ministry. And boy, did the rug get pulled out from under me. And I can tell you, he humbled me more than a pup. And he'll do the same thing for you for one simple reason. If you're his child, he loves you. And he loves you enough to hurt you. He'll hurt you if it'll help you. Because you don't want to ruin your life. And he's not going to let you ruin it if he is allowed to have anything to say about it. So if you've been humbled, if you are, your heart's been broken, and you've been uh, beaten down pretty good, don't get up from that. Just rise yourself in the Lord and his goodness and his grace, but don't rise from the dirt. The safest, most blessed place for a believer is in the dirt. Bow down. A song we sang the other Sunday, and I do appreciate one of the Folks who attended the service that morning when the choir was singing Bow the Knee uh, emailed us and indicated a very kind and gracious word about the compliment of the choir and how the Lord really worked in her heart in that service. And the music was such a blessing to her and an encouragement about that and so forth. May I say to you, that's a, a true song that many Christians never get around to. Not everybody. There's some Christians who bow the knee every morning. I mean, uh, they don't just have devotions, they get down on their knees and have devotions right here in the New Life Baptist Church. There are folks in our fellowship who, who believe in, in the, the getting down, getting down low. Isn't it interesting that the Muslims get down low? Isn't it interesting that the Jews get down low? But isn't it interesting that most Christians, when they pray, stand upright and even lift their hands sometimes? Now, the Bible talks about lifting the hands, so there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact is, it's whether or not your heart's down. It's not so much a position as it is how is the heart. Now, you can stand up and have a right heart. Nobody says you can't. But for some, getting down on your knees and, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, oh, by the way. There was an article that came out in a magazine that's written for Christian people. comes across our desk maybe quarterly. They did a survey. Interesting survey of Baptists, Fundamental Baptists, Southern Baptists, and Community Baptists. And I don't know what that is. And they gave this report concerning prayer. The questions were very simple. It started out with, do you pray daily? Then it went to, do you pray more than ten minutes a day? And then it went into some other questions and so forth. When it came down to about the 10th or 11th question in this thing, it said, when you have a serious issue for which something is hanging in the balance, it's of great concern to you, what position do you take when you pray? 95%. 95% said, I get on my face before the Lord. Isn't it interesting? When things get rough, when things get hard, when things get bad, when a crisis comes, we don't stand so upright. Why do you think that is? Well, one of them, I tell you frankly, it is the Lord allows things into your life to keep you humble. To keep you humble. A proud person is of no profit to the cause of Christ. None. Zero. Zero. So you've got to get rid of the pride in order to be used. And if you get rid of the pride and then God begins to use you, and if you get a little bit cocky in that, he may have to bring you down again. And and he'll keep bringing you down because he keeps loving you. And he knows pride will ruin you. Pride is a horrible disease of the soul. And it's one of those things that in the case with our Lord Jesus Christ, the devil is, is uh, obviously not too smart. In calling out to him to tell him to, you bow the knee here to me, and I'll give you this stuff. The Lord could have just as easily say, excuse me, but the ground you're standing on I created, it's mine. It's mine. But the devil, like a lot of people, don't recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, they recognize he's God in the flesh, and they recognize he died on the cross, but he's still not Lord of their life. And he's not Lord of their house. They're not, he's not Lord of their, their belongings, things they own, the things they possess. He's not Lord of that. They are still Lord of that. He's just Lord in the bubble. And they're inside the bubble, and what's in there, they take care of. It's theirs. That's not the Bible perception of things. Everything you own, he allowed you to have. Everything you call yours, he entrusted you with. And therefore, there is nothing unlike what the devil is doing in this case as to what you and I do when we have pride where we should have humility. It's amazing to me that um, I was reading an article a few days ago, and in this article, uh, there was something caught my my eye immediately. And as it did, I uh, stopped and, and did some thinking about it. Let me read some of it to you. Many Christians living under persecution in communist countries are confused when they hear how socially acceptable Christianity is, or at least seems to be, in the West. Since Paul's statement that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12, has proved true for Russians or Polish people, Chinese believers, they wonder why the same is not true for the Christians in America. How is it that the Christians in America don't have to bite the dust because of persecution? And they pray that God will help us not to compromise under the pressures of popularity and success, just as they have refused to be corrupted by the communist program. These believers would find it astonishing that Christians in the West spend months and even years in therapy to overcome the damage to their psyches allegedly caused by rejection. Those who grow up under totalitarian regimes hostile to the gospel, listen carefully, expect to be rejected, expect to be despised, expect to be ridiculed, and expect even to be imprisoned or even killed as some of their family members have been for their faith and they do not understand how the importance in the christians in the west place so much emphasis on self-esteem self-acceptance self-fulfillment pride and arrogance they do not understand us They understand how Christians in America are so self-arrogant when they themselves have paid a horrible price for just standing for the cause of Christ. It would be even more incomprehensible in such suffering Christians, many of whom have never owned a Bible, and who for the long of the day they will long for the day when they will receive one that's been smuggled into their country, to be told that the church in the West considers Bibles to be an adequate and the Holy Spirit insufficient to provide complete spiritual guidance and power for living the Christian life. Part of the problem in the West with such thinking is caused by confusion and confusing inferiority feelings with a lack of self-esteem. The former involves performance or an ability, while the latter pertains to one's feelings of personal worth. Clearly, the greater a person's self-esteem and self-love the more disappointment there will be if abilities and performances are not comparable. No one hates himself, but he may hate his circumstance or appearance or lack of ability. The very fact that we dislike our appearance or lament our inability or become upset when people or others in circumstances abuse us is proof that we love and esteem ourselves For if we did not esteem ourselves, we would be glad when things go against us because then we would be humble. To feel inferior to others, to feel an inadequacy or a task at hand is not a defect that must be remedied. Listen carefully. To feel inferior to others or to feel inadequate for the task at hand is not a defect that must be remedied before one can be useful. Yea, on the contrary, recognizing one's inability is a prerequisite to genuine victory, for it is when we are delivered from the self-confidence that God can use us for his glory. In fact, he can't use you if you're confident in what you're doing of your own ability. If confidence breeds itself the further, most likely he will set you aside. And you of no use to him or for anything pertaining to the building of his kingdom. Just check what the Bible says. It was Jonathan, the lame son of a Mephibosheth. that called himself a dead dog. But you find it interesting, don't you, that God raised him up under King David and he sat instead at the daily rationings of the royal table. 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's interesting that Gideon considered himself incapable, his family poor, and himself the least in his father's house. Judges 6. And yet he learned to trust God and became one of Israel's greatest deliverers. Isaiah shrank from God's call and considering himself a man of unclean lips and unworthy to speak for the Lord. Isaiah 6. Amos was no prophet but a mere herdsman, Amos 7, whom God used to pronounce judgment upon the nation. And turning point in Job's life came when he finally hated himself, Job 42, and then only when God or when could God before him use him and restore him. When called by God, Moses responded, Who am I that I should go up to the Pharaoh? And, and he insisted that he was slow of speech and incapable Exodus chapter 4, and God answered to Moses and said simply to bring courage to everyone who feels inferior, he says the same, I will be with you. I will supply what you lack. Far from dealing with Moses' inferiority and building his poor self-image, God promised his presence and power. In fact, he chose Moses, the meekest man on the earth, Numbers 12 to confront the world's mightiest emperor in his palace and deliver his people so that God and not man would have the glory i say to you that that's written all through the scriptures everywhere you read in the scriptures in fact this just uh, this week came to my desk this was uh, someone shared this with me and uh, and i'm glad they did it's called the perfected strength of god Paul wrote about it in Second Corinthians 12.9 when he said, My strength is made perfect in weakness. This author of this article says, There is a, a resting difference between God's thoughts and man's concerning weaknesses and inadequacies. We are inclined to consider these justifiable excuses for shrinking from difficult tasks. God advances these very qualities as reasons for tackling it. Brother Mike, it's almost what you said in Sunday school this morning about taking the responsibility of a job and letting the Lord take care of us, supplying the power to work it out. We maintain that we're too weak. God asserts that to be the very reason He chose you. He doesn't need anybody who's going to go around fluffing their own feathers. He's not going to use anybody who's going to go around and puffing their own sail. He's not going to do that. He's looking for somebody that is a nobody that he can make somebody out of. And when he gets that nobody, who really is a nobody, who doesn't want any glory, doesn't want you to mention his name, doesn't want to put it in print, doesn't want anybody patting him on the back, he just wants to bring glory to God, and he accepts himself as nothing and nobody, that's a person you can expect to see some great things out of. God's got great plans for that person. Man, woman, boy, or girl. But for the person who talks about and speaks of and and talks the rest of us who may not be so able in whatever field it may be and tries to make us feel as if they're bigger, better, and smarter, they've just disqualified themselves for the work of the ministry. They're out of bounds. They've stepped on the line. And there's no purpose for that. What the Lord wants to do is break you. My guess is he will. He may not break you this week. He may not break you next week. But he'll break you. And it's just like when we used to play games in school. And the secret was that, you know, you did this thing where you stand face to face with a young man, put your fingers and hands on his, and you wrap them over each other, and you started pushing the veil off his balance. Or if he was afraid he was going to fall, he'd say, uncle, uncle. And that was a word of surrender. On these uh, fights that these guys do, you know, we'll put them in the cage fighting. They call it tapping out. You, know, you have to pat the guy if you're surrendered. You do the same thing when it was with Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He tapped out. He said, you, you, you've hurt me. And he said, now you can't leave me until you bless me. I'm telling you that that's what God does with every person He uses. I don't know of any case in the Scriptures. I don't know any case in in practical life. Of all the preachers I know, of all the ones I've come in touch with, I don't know of any of them who haven't been touched, broken in some way where God said, now I can use you. Now you're my servant. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And I want you to glorify me. And if you can't do that, I'll touch you again. And I'll touch you again. And I'll touch you again. Because I love you enough to stay after you. But what the Lord won't tolerate, he won't tolerate us boasting in ourselves. The passage in First Corinthians chapter 1. It's easy to look at that passage, and I did this week in devotional time passage that says, instead of the wise and mighty and the noble filling the front ranks of God's army, we find it's the foolish, the weak, the despised, the nonentities. And why is that? That no human being might boast in the presence of the holy God of heaven, and that his strength might be made perfect in weakness. If you've already arrived, and you think you've arrived, then there's no place for God to work and make glory in himself and to get glory to himself because you've stolen it all. So if you think it's of you, there's no room for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 12, He, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world, to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. I'll give you two illustrations and we go home. First off, we already know to some degree, I hope, about the great D.L. Moody. Uh, we know that he, uh, he shook two continents for the Lord, worked out of Chicago, and all over the country and the world, and did just a a wonderful work, was a great preacher. I have books in my library, and and the sermons he's preached, and and, um, illustrations he's given. Um, I have books with both, and I enjoy reading them. And it's obvious the Lord was with him, and worked in his life, and used him mightily. What a lot of people don't know, though, because almost all the work that's done of his writings was proof-corrected. That is, when it was turned over to the publisher, they couldn't publish it. Uh, It it just was awful. Guy couldn't, he couldn't work himself out of a grammar bag. He just couldn't make it. He just just was pathetic what he said. Uh, My uh, wife showed me a a presentation that was on a, uh, I don't know, Julie, did you put that on there about the guy in the burger shop? Did you, who put that on there, you know? It has a sign on a burger shop. And it says something like this. Our grill is closed. And we are, and he says, he was trying to say our, and he says R A R E R A-R-E-R. And my point is, the grammar was so pathetic, you wouldn't understand the sign. I mean, this was, this was bad all the way around. The point about that is, that's what D.L. Moody was. People who sat under him, you would be shocked and surprised to know that some of them were kings, princes, and queens came to hear him preach. I mean, nobody urged him, pushed them, or shoved him. These people heard about him and went to hear him preach, and God worked in the hearts of some of those people. The elitists, the rich people came to hear him, but he killed the king's English. I mean, he just butchered that thing. But nobody, but nobody shook the two continents like D.L. Moody did because he didn't have any education. He was just a shoe salesman. That's what God's looking for. I was in Ohio years ago when we pastored up there, and we had always heard of the great Canton Baptist Temple. And uh, Dr. Harold Henniger, I respected him before I ever heard him because I knew the work he had done and the ministry he had built, and the church was hundreds, maybe 2,000, 3,000 people, great church. And uh, I went to hear him. I've never in my life been so unimpressed with a preacher in in anything I've ever heard. I mean, and I'm not being disrespectful, because when he got done doing what he did, there were decisions made in that service just like there was something beyond this guy's preaching. that got this done. This wasn't just built on the sermon was good and it was a great outline and a couple of good illustrations thrown in. There was something about this thing that obviously the Lord was in, and people came to faith in Christ when that guy got done. I was in a service where Lawrence Orney and Judy and I and the boys, I believe, went to Lawrence One's church and Brother Loney had a large church in Ohio. Lawrence O'Neill read every single word in every sermon. And yet he built a big church. Huge church. People came to faith in Christ almost every service. Read every word. Never looked up. He'd just get in the service, put his head down and start reading. And he read for 45 minutes and then he got up and he gave an invitation and people just came to faith in Christ. Why does that kind of thing happen? Because these men were not educated men for sure, but only on the top of that these men didn't see themselves as anything. They, they had just been called of God to go do a work and they said, I'm nothing, I don't, I'm not able, to, capable to do a great work for you. And the Lord would say, you're exactly who I'm looking for because you won't break your arm patting yourself on the back, I want you to come preach for me. And those men did. There's one other, and uh, most of us who know any church history would know about him. His name was Wilberforce. You remember the guy in, uh, in uh, Britain, I guess it was. He was a guy who had such an impact on slavery and even impacted America, did a lot of writing and communicating and so forth. What most people don't know about Wilberforce is, with a name like Wilberforce, you'd think this guy was a giant. Uh, you'd think he was as big as Gary Elfers. You know, you'd think this, this guy's got it, man. This, this is Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a runt. I mean, a runt. And one man said it right. He said, when Wilberforce got up to speak, it was like a shrimp clawed up on a table, and you could hardly see him. But when he got down, was like a whale just got off because it wasn't in his size and it wasn't in his looks and most of us understand that the apostle paul was considered quote by a runt some of those who wrote about him and those historians who made references about him said he was a small stature not just small stature this was a runt but boy was the apostle paul something for the lord but do remember he recorded all those things that might be pluses in his life. But he counted all those but dung, waste of a body, a beast. Counted all of it but the waste of the body that he might know Christ. And he might serve him faithfully. Gave up all the titles, all the accolades, and all the prospects of rising to the top of the world. That he might be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and call himself nothing in the process. Let me tell you, that's what the Lord's looking for. He's not looking for somebody who's already made themselves and now they're ready to go and, you know, they're ready to go fight a great battle for the Lord. That's not what he's looking for because he knows you'll get the glory, you'll take the glory. And don't you think you wouldn't? Deep inside of every one of us, there's this little spark and this little place where if the right things were said and the right words were said and weren't were shared, it would be easy for you to begin to gloat in something you've done or something that you've said or some action you've taken that they brag on. And sure enough, all of a sudden, you begin to get big-breasted. You begin to think highly of yourself. And yet the Bible says we think too highly of ourselves already. And one of the things we've got to start doing is thinking less of ourselves and more of Him. The more you think of yourself and build yourself up, the less the room is for Him to do anything in your life. And I'm telling you, if you ever want to do anything for the Lord, you need to have a lot of room for Him to work. And therefore, if you stack your life with all the stuff that you want to do, and don't leave room for Him to say, here's what I want to do with you, but I want you to get rid of all that. Let's just take it this way. If I had a talent, any kind, let's say an artist, a daughter. let's say I have this artist's ability, and let's say I could pay, uh, paint the most beautiful sunsets, and let's say I could sell them for $10,000. And people would come to me and say, boy, I tell you, Pastor Junior, you're just the best artist I have ever seen in my life. These are the most beautiful things I have ever looked upon. Say, yeah, I know. I know. These are good, man. These are good. I do good. Do I know? Oh, You do good. Yeah, you do good. And then the Lord says to me, "Now, look, Rick, I can't use you with that kind of attitude, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to give up the art. I don't want you doing any more art. I don't want you to pick up an artist's brush, no more paint, no nothing. I don't want you to be an artist. I want you to come over here and I'm going to call you to preach the gospel, and I want you to focus on me, my word." And the mission that I'll give you, that's what I want you to do. Uh, Wait, 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 Lord. I don't know a thing about preaching the gospel. I don't know a thing about leading a church. I don't know a thing about that. He said, that's exactly why I'm calling you. Because you knew so much about the artwork and you thought you were somebody. I can't use you with art. You're going to boast about that. You're going to brag about that. You're going to tell people you know that. I don't want you to do that. I want you to do what I want you to do that you don't know, so I'll get all the glory. Now, let me tell you something tonight. That's what the Lord wants from you. He doesn't want you to come with all the stuff that you've accumulated so you can do anything that he would ask you to do. He, hey, don't want that. No, 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 no. Because you get all the glory. You got yourself ready, and you picked the subject, and you jumped on it, and you did it. That's not what he wants. He wants somebody who's empty of self and who's ready to be filled with his calling and his will and ready to do his work his way. And when he gets that person, he'll use them again. One of the men wrote in one of these articles, and I won't read all the article to you. In fact, I won't read it. Time's up. But one of the things that he said in the article was, we often hear people wonder, why don't we have D.L. Moody's and why don't we have Charles Spurgeon's these days? Where are these great men of the pulpit and men who were real uh, dedicated, godly men who really accomplished something in the pulpit ministry? And how come we don't have those men back? One man wrote in the article as an answer to that, he said very simply, because we in our programs in our schools and everywhere else in our programming on television and all the media, we promote the idea of us being... Uh, Self-educated kind of people. That is, you do what you got to do to get what you need to get. And what happens then is that you get all this, and then you begin to take pride in it, and then you're not usable. And so this man said, if we just had more people who just accept the fact they don't know how to do the things of the Lord, but they're willing to do it if he calls them, points them to it, directs them to it, they jump on it in a heartbeat He's looking for a person who'd pioneer that kind of spirit. And I say to you, that's exactly what he's looking for. I agree with this man wholeheartedly. That's why we don't have people doing great things, because people come already with things they're doing and want God to take it and use it in the direction they want to go with it. It's just like Brother Mike was saying in Sunday school, same point. And I'm saying to you that God's looking for somebody who said, hey, uh, here am I, I'll do whatever you want. And I don't have a clue what you want me to do, but I'm willing to do it. By the way, that's where and how I surrendered to the ministry. I told the Lord, I don't know a thing about this. I have no idea what I'm getting into, but I do believe that's what you want me to do. And here and now, at this point in time, I surrender to do it. And I went home from college that weekend, and I went to my pastor and I told him, I don't know anything about this. And nobody's talked to me about it. Nobody asked me about doing it. And nobody said I should do it. But I believe God's called me to preach. And he said, that's what you'll do then. I will help you. But the Lord will use you. If you come empty handed. Not hands full of what you believe he wants to use. But rather come empty handed. I have nothing. Nothing. I just come empty handed. I'm telling you. That's how it is to be used of God. And I say to you this evening that no greater joy is there in living the victorious Christian life than to see God take somebody who's a nobody and make them into somebody for him. That's what he's looking for. The question is, are you humble enough to be used by the holy God of heaven? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the great truth about humility and, Father, it is a great truth. It, it casts questions upon us as to whether we've truly been saved by the grace of God when there is no sense of humility about us, when we have a, a sense of arrogance and cockiness and early in, in my own ministry, in my own life. I remember so intensely being convinced and convicted about the attitude I was showing and how gracious and kind the men around me at that time were to help me to see such a sinful, wicked kind of attitude. And I'm grateful for that to this day. And I thank you and praise you for what you show us from your word about the importance of humility and about the curse of pride, how it eliminates us from being used of you. And so this evening I pray you'll drive this truth into all of our hearts. All of us need this. Every person in this room needs this. This preacher needs this. All of our deacons need this. All of our Sunday school teachers need this. All of our workers need this. Every usher we have, every choir member we have, the folks at the instruments and all the folks in the nursery, everywhere, everybody in the New Life Baptist Church needs to have a spirit of humility. We need to be recognizing that our place is at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not equal to him to stand beside of him. Uh, We can stand up for him when he's not present, but we need to bow when he comes around. When we fail and since we're praying and seeking his face in a very serious matter, we won't have any problem falling down on our faces because that's what most people will do. We really get low when we have a need because we want him to see and recognize that we're nothing and he's everything. So help us in our service for you and our volunteering ourselves to be used of you. Help us to come, first of all, empty-handed. Help us to come with an open heart, that is, an open plan for our lives to say whatever you ask i'll write it in that's what i'll do and not to second guess you and not to try to direct your steps toward our will but our will toward yours guide and direct us through this i pray and even in this service you'll speak to our hearts if there's a person here who is already doing contrary to your will but not coming to faith in christ i pray father you'll draw them this evening in this service thank you for your goodness your grace and your patience and you are patient with us And I pray you'll work in our lives to glorify yourself. Bless this invitation to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll ask you to stand with us. If you need a hymn book, you can turn to 390, I believe. 390.